Criminal Behaviorology to assist the criminal and civil justice systems to improve our society a podcast like no other here is your host Timothy Joseph Okay, I have missed you a great deal, my listening audience. This is Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host, Timothy Joseph. It's been a little while since we had a podcast. I can tell you that I will be in virtual form at the... Association for Behavior Analysis International um, Conference. It will be, uh, as I said, a virtual conference on May 23rd. I'll be part of a uh, symposium on behavior analysis and crime. We'll also have our special interest group uh, business meeting. And we're going to also have the poster session, yes, in virtual form. So if you're uh, attending the ABAI uh, conference uh, virtually as we can this year, I've probably said virtually enough, uh, please check it out. I think we'll we'll have some good programs. Um, And uh, hats off to ABAI for making this happen despite all the world's difficulties right now. In addition, there's going to be an upcoming webinar on uh, careers in uh, behavior analysis in the criminal justice system. Uh, Details coming soon, but it'll be uh, a lot of people have asked about that of getting work in these two combined areas of behavior analysis and criminal justice somewhere in that realm and that's what we're going to cover details coming soon the detail i'm going to cover today is about the book psychosocial criminology and introduction this is by david gad and tony jefferson and it is uh not our usual fare so bear with me and keep an open mind. Uh, from the Amazon page, it says this book critiques existing psychological and sociological theories before outlining a more adequate understanding of the criminal offender. It sheds new light on a series of crimes, rape, serial murder, racial harassment, jack rolling, which is mugging, domestic violence, and contemporary criminological issues such as fear of crime, Cognitive Behavioral Interventions, and Restorative Justice. Authors David Gadd and Tony Jefferson bring together theories about identity, subjectivity, and gender to provide the first comprehensive account of their psychoanalytically, yes, I said that, inspired approach. For each topic, the theoretical perspective is supported by individual case studies which are designed to facilitate the understanding of theory and to demonstrate its application to a variety of criminological topics. So I got a hold of both these gentlemen 
and they agreed via WebEx to have the interview with me and we covered a lot of good stuff about what is psychosocial criminology, the significance of uh, case studies in their work, the um, some of the Freudian ideas, yes, uh, some of the ideas uh, regarding the fear of crime, and uh, the commonality with the Jack Katz book, which was called Seductions of Crime, a really good book I, I read a long time ago. So don't agree on everything, but I think we share some common ground. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, go over to the interview. They are both uh, very learned individuals and come from a very different, although uh, I think a very important perspective. So let's go ahead and listen to the interview starting right now. Welcome to Criminal Behaviorology. Uh, this uh, we're going to cover the book and, and some of the research around uh, psychosocial criminology. And I've got a couple of distinguished guests and really to, to make this simple, the first author, uh, Tony Jefferson, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm uh, Emeritus Professor of Criminology at Keele University, uh, where I taught for 10 years. Uh, before that, I had a 20-year spell at Sheffield University. Um, I started out uh, in education actually. I'm a school teacher way back, but then went back to do postgraduate work in cultural studies and got interested in things to do with youth culture, youth subcultures, deviant youth subcultures, which gradually began to morph over into criminology. And um, so leaving there, I got into research on into the police. Uh, 10 years of doing research on policing meant I was a fully established criminologist by then. Mm -hmm. And I've done work in various other areas, including masculinity, for example, fear of crime, and, uh, well, uh, most recently um, working with Dave Gadd on, on the book on psychosocial criminology. Mm -hmm. did, Tony, did you uh, lecture at John Jay College? I did. I had a year there in 2007, uh, eight. Okay. I'm an alumnus there, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, so... Okay. How long ago? Uh, I graduated in 2000. Okay. Before I was there. Yeah. Okay. What, was it in forensic psychology or, or criminal justice? Or? No, I'm in sociology. Okay. Um, I think that's where they lodge criminology there. Yeah. They have lots of different programs, including criminal justice and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, because it's police college, wasn't it? You're right. It's a uh, it's criminal justice, forensic psychology, uh, forensic science, and uh, and uh, public uh, public uh, management. So yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, David. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, background and how you got in interested in this area? 
what other kinds of problems uh, psychosocial criminology could could address. Okay. Right. I there was a, a uh, interview we had uh, with uh, Marilyn Bonham, and she had a, a, an instrument called the Battering Assessment Tool. And just to to make a somewhat long story short. It was that uh, a lot of these rigid typologies of a uh, uh, somebody that's a psychopath or someone that is a uh, low self-esteem that that it really didn't fit very well, and that might be one of the problems with uh, a lack of success in domestic violence intervention is that we go by a model that isn't quite accurate. I think that's right. I mean, one of the, the, the main typologies that's used is the Holtzworth Monroe one that distinguishes between mm-hmm. family only batterers who are people that, you know, just abuse in their families, uh, men who are, are borderline or emotionally dysphoric, and people who are antisocial, and they're usually people that are defined by their drink and drug use. In my experience, m- most men who are abusive can fall into at least two of those categories. Most are. Uh, emotionally dysphoric, mm-hmm. emotionally needy, jealous, possessive, insecure in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of those people also turn to drink and drugs to try and appease the mm-hmm. feelings that they've got before they explode mm-hmm. or even after they've exploded or whatever. Uh, and, you know, and the idea that people are only abusive within their family, well, it can be partly true. There are people who are more abusive in the family than they are on the outside. But it doesn't mean to say that when things unravel in their lives that they won't turn mm-hmm. on somebody at work or in the pub or mm-hmm. somebody who comes to arrest them, you know. So often these typologies, I think, can sometimes lead to practitioners looking in the wrong place mm-hmm. for the cause of the problem. I've got to work out what type of person this is first before I then struggle to intervene, whereas a better place really would be to sit down and listen mm-hmm. and listen really attentively to that person's account of why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you might be able to try and Mm-hmm. Try and explore that more with them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Tony, I'll, I'll ask you uh, just in general, uh, what would you say, uh, how would you describe psychosocial criminology and how might it differ from, say, what we would call uh, forensic psychology or criminal psychology? Well, you might have to tell me more about forensic psychology. Mm-hmm. What I know is that psychosocial criminology emerges or was important to, to us because the the notion of the criminal subject that was pre-existing uh, was inadequate in all kinds of ways. Either the, the, the subject was a, a freely choosing, rational, unitary subject in sort of one version or he or she could be uh, the determined outcome of a whole range of social factors that pressured them. That would be the sociological version. So either a freely choosing agent or a totally determined agent, agent determined by their social background or the social environment. Both of those notions uh, seemed inadequate because they don't take account of the fact that all of us um, have both an internal world as well as being subject to the pressures of an external world. Mm-hmm. And so the absence of that, um, trying to bring together the idea of a subject with an internal world as well as 
subject to the pressures of an external world with what we were doing. Now, if you go back through criminology, you, you will re may remember that way back, sort of between and between the wars, you might say, 20s to 50s, um, or just after the war, um, psychoanalysis had a, quite a big role in criminology. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was an attempt to produce an idea of a, of a psychological subject, but a, a psychoanalytic subject, mm -hmm. but rather divorced from the social. And then sociology comes along and takes over criminology and produces a totally social subject. So the idea was to try and bring together the idea of a psychoanalytic subject with a sociological subject and to produce a psychosocial subject, somebody who had a you know an inner world as well as an external world. And the important thing about the the the, the difference between a, a psychoanalytic subject and a, and a freely choosing subject is, you know, going back to David's example from the domestic violence perpetrators. You know, they don't always know, they're not in control of what they do at a certain moment in time. It goes beyond reason. Their reasoning self might tell them no, but something mm -hmm. inside is so pressurizing that they do it anyway. And it's that conflict between, uh, if you like, the unconscious self mm -hmm. and the conscious self that is, of course, at the heart of psychoanalysis. Uh, what we were trying to do was to retain that notion, but also place it within the social context. We were well aware, as you know, criminologists with a sociological background, that social pressures are, are real and they uh -huh. they make a difference. But it's trying to see how the two interact. That is to say, how people make sense of their world, how they come to make their world meaningful as a result of yes a series of conscious desires but also the unconscious motivations that they're not so aware of that they they're unconscious because they're as david was saying about perpetrators it's too painful to recognize so mm -hmm. in psychoanalysis we know that those painful um ideas are are variously defended against, repressed, or disavowed, or in various ways uh, defended against, so that you don't have to be faced constantly with that painful reality. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's kind of a roundabout way of, of, of answering you, but that's mm -hmm. our notion, I think, of the psychosocial subject. Mm -hmm. Tony, can we, in, a, in modern life, can we determine uh, what the unconscious is? Is it kind of just anything that, that cannot come into the conscious realm because of a set of conditioning or, or other set of conditions? We, what, what do we, can we define the unconscious uh, in a modern method? Well, I mean, any, for any one individual, of course, that by definition, I can't know what my unconscious, what is unconscious by definition, it's yeah. unconscious to me. But, but, but talking about it generally, unconscious consists of those things which are too painful to, to confront in reality, so mm -hmm. that we have seriously defended against them. We have, mm -hmm. and Freud has a whole series of ideas about, you know, defense mechanisms in play, but I don't think it's very difficult to see.
see them in action in everyday examples. I mean, David was giving a good example again of projection, which is one of the defences. You know, when something's too unbearable, we tend to get rid of it, project it onto somebody else, mm-hmm. and and blame them for for what actually is going on inside us. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know. I was thinking of a particular, uh, an everyday example like uh, always being late mm-hmm. and 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 blaming that on the other. It was the other's fault, you know, mm-hmm. rather than accepting something about your your behaviour, which is uh, you're not fully aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, um, as to why it is you're constantly late? Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody who's constantly late. Um, let's say for a psychoanalytic interview. Yeah. That would be the first conversation the psychoanalytic bring up. Why are you late? I tried to be on time, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sorry. Right, I mean, go with what you're saying. Uh, like we, I hear the phrase passive-aggressive used a lot this day and age, but uh, the original idea of that, I, I believe, was that it was an unconscious process. In other words, uh, uh, if you say, okay, I'll take you, I'll take you to the theater uh, Monday night, and then you don't show up, and that happens and happens again, but you, the individual person, are, you know, oh, I, uh, the alarm clock didn't go off, or I forgot this. There's always a reason for it, but you yourself, when you're passive-aggressive, don't realize it. Yeah, I think David had a hand out there, so I'll let him come in. Go ahead, David. I was was going to say, I mean, of course, in the perfect Freudian version, the unconscious reveals itself in in dreams and in slips of the tongue Mm -hmm. um, and jokes. Um, And, of course, we we, we see that in everyday life all the time, that there are things that we kind of wish had happened but don't happen. We see people who tell stories about arguments or conflicts they have that kind of constantly present them as the victor, as if, you know, the thing that they wish they'd said, the final clincher of an argument had been made, but actually they didn't say it. And we, we you know, we see a political class also that does this all the time, um, that constantly represents stories about what they wish they had said or what they wish they had claimed. There are fantasies going on there about being totally in control of the world, not being, uh, you know, not being weak, not being vulnerable, not making mistakes. So there are always kind of unconscious elements to those kind of things that are going on, too, that people can't kind of fully um, admit to themselves. So I think that that insight that there are that there are things that people wish for that they can't really um, always admit to some of the time is another way of of thinking about the unconscious. There are some things that are very very deep. You know, when we think about people that commit bizarre kind of sexual crimes we might think about deep kinds of unconscious fantasies going on there mm-hmm. but there's all kinds of unconscious wish fulfillment going on in, in everybody's life mm-hmm. even people who are relatively happy and untroubled mm-hmm. uh, and so i think that's that's quite an important insight to hang on to and, and, and quite important in the context of what we were trying to do with psychosocial criminology which was to, to try and humanize offenders and even to try and humanise some of those people that do extreme things, to say, well, there are some things about them, including the sort of darker elements of them, that are, are, are similar to everyday people. And mm-hmm. given certain circumstances or unfortunate events, that many of us could turn out to be a bit mm-hmm. a bit nastier than we'd like to believe that we 
we could be. Mm -hmm. You had written uh, early on in the, the book, when both criminologists and psychologists fail to explain particular crimes adequately, only the writer journalists are left to plug the gap. Given that they are usually untrained in social sciences, however, interesting and thoughtful their work, and much good work on particular crimes, especially on murder, has stemmed from writers and journalists, and you give a list. This is hardly a satisfactory state of affairs. So, do you, I mean, can you have any, David, do you have any further explanation on that, about kind of that individual view on criminality? Well, I suppose, you know, one of the things that sociological criminology does, Tony was trying to say this to you a minute ago, was it, it tends to give you a view of the typical offender, you know, and maybe someone from a deprived background with a poor level of education um, who kind of gets into trouble as a way out of, or, or gets involved in crime as a way out of their hardship. And because of that, because sociological criminologists tend not to deal with those extreme cases that we see in the the news, uh, whether it's to do with murders or hate crimes or sexual violence, then the, the, the void is left open really to journalists who kind of will sometimes will do a sort of digging around into the person's life and try to explain why things have become the way they have come, but more often will resort to a discourse of evil. Uh, and you particularly see this at the moment in relation to crimes of human trafficking. Uh, that the traffickers must be evil, that, that what they do is so beyond the pale, so unthinkable, mm -hmm. that there's no other explanation than a, than a religious explanation, that these people have just got no morals. Because it's really rare when you do mm -hmm. interviews with people who've committed even the most extreme forms of crime to find people who've got no sense of morality at, at all. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, it, it's really important, actually, for, for criminologists to engage with cases in depth to try and understand the complexity of mm -hmm. the people that we are talking about because they don't go away simply through condemning them. But if we don't try to explain their behaviour, there are, you know, there are lots of other people out there that will condemn people mm -hmm. that commit these crimes and will often come out with criminal justice solutions that are really unfitting or really reduce other people's human rights or sometimes even counterproductive, you know, end up punishing people who just had really terrible lives mm -hmm. um, without an understanding of why they became the way they became. So that, that was the gap that we were trying to step into, this okay. need for a better understanding. And that's a good thought. Uh, Tony, you, I think you had something to say on that. I just wanted to add that the, one of the reasons journalists take over the role is that it's very, very difficult to get funding to do a single case study, uh -huh. like a you know, single murder, and spend six months to a year just following uh, the events. I mean, for example, I, I've just been uh, reading, finally, the uh, uh, One of Us, the uh, story of the massacre in Norway by the right-wing... Now, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful book, but it couldn't have been written by a social scientist in a sense because we just don't have the resources to mm -hmm. put behind kind of work. It is so basically what we were often doing in the book was taking that as a point. They've done a lot of the work in terms of, if you might call the empirical factual stuff that we then start to rethink in a slightly different framework. Mm -hmm. But in terms of 
producing the empirical data, I think, you know, there's some brilliant examples and a very, very impressive work indeed uh, from journalists who, who have done the legwork and done some mm-hmm. uh, digging around in a way, as I say, that I just don't think the research community in criminology is, is sufficiently geared up for or sympathetic to, to allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. We need, you know, big numbers. This is how it works in the contemporary university. Yeah, so part of it is, is the methodology of, of universities and, and research and how it's commonly done and funded is, uh, is a significant factor in all of this. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I was going to ask then, uh, Tony or David, you, why are case studies significant in a field such as this? And uh, a little bit about cross-sectional studies as a problem in research, the, the other side of it. So either one of you can yeah, chime I'll in. Take, I'll take the case study. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. I, mean, I think case studies are about refining and developing theory. Mm-hmm. They're trying to say... Does the theory that we've existing that we're working with does it cover this case? Mm-hmm. And if case throws up new elements that, if you like, the existing theoretical framework doesn't cover, then you have to do a little bit more theorising. So it's constantly uh, developing theory, developing new ideas, just as Freud did with his original studies. He had another case, and that made him rethink some things about his theory. Uh, but in the end, you know, the theory of psychoanalysis comes out of cases. Mm-hmm. That's how developed. So that's what we're doing in case studies, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, that's what it's about. David, cross-section. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing with case studies is, is that they enable you to hold lots of the different pieces together, and in that way you get a greater level of depth. So, you know, we've, we've done research on racially motivated offenders where you, you've turned up, you've met someone who's been convicted of some quite serious hate crimes. You said, well, I've got no problem with people from minority ethnic groups or I've got no problem with black people or no problem with Asian people. But what I've got is a problem with people who don't respect women. And so within the case study method, you can then kind of explore what kinds of people have you known? You know, what people have you known who don't respect women? And then you'll start to see in the story a degree of racialization may appear. That there's somebody in the past who's reminded them of this person that they've attacked. And so with our case studies, we've been able to make those kind of connections that are often, you know, freely associated in, in interviews. Cross-sectional studies are actually a different tool for a very different job. Um, so mm-hmm. if you wanted to know, for example, what percentage of the population will change their behaviour in relation to a government message topical at the moment with all the stuff that's being said about the, the COVID pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. well, a cross-sectional study may tell you something about who will be receptive to this message or what kind of things you would need to put in place to change the majority of people's behaviour. It won't give you an explanation for why that behaviour will change necessarily, because some people might change their behaviour out of just deference to government. Other people might change their behaviour because they see it's in their best interest. Um, And it won't tell you about the extremes. And that might not matter from a public health perspective, because you're trying to do the best by the most people with the resources you've got. But 
in criminology, we're, you know, there is a, a need for a public health approach, certainly a need to try to manage crime rates, and a cross-sectional study might enable you to do that, might enable you to work out what, for example, is the best way of managing illicit drug use, you know, whether, for example, criminalisation is a good method of reducing the harm that drug use uh, causes or, or not. But it won't tell you why some people become heavily dependent upon particular substances, and it won't reach to those people at the very margins of society who, by definition, are doing something because they want to break the rules. I mean, many rule breakers get something out of breaking rules, and we have to try and understand where that temptation comes from. So case studies enable us to get at those more complicated questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge with case studies, though, is, is being able to generalise the wider population and to show how the person in your case connects with that wider population, even if they're an extreme example. And that's that conceptual job. So I think of, a, of a, something using inferential statistics, say, and this would be in the United States, but say the, the death penalty, we would, we would look at who is being executed, what areas of the country, what kinds of crimes, of murders. We would look at all that and be able to, to infer from that all the data. But an individual death penalty case or just a murderer, you, may, you, you really need a... Uh, you need an in-depth analysis of that particular case. Uh, I, I've heard it said before that uh, inferential statistics may mask data in a sense because you're just looking at, at too big a scope. There may be a couple of things you'd want to do with a death penalty case in the US, and one would be to try and understand how it is that that person got to the position where they ended up committing a, a crime that was so serious that merited the death penalty. And if you could do that, then you, you might actually engender a degree of understanding in the, in the general population as to why you know, some people end up doing genuinely terrible things. Of course, the other approach to cases with all of those death penalty cases is kind of legal case review where you would come to a view very quickly that only certain people that commit certain crimes end up on death row and a large percentage of the population actually who commit serious crimes don't end up on death row, predominantly African-American prisoners from really you know, difficult backgrounds that end up on death row. There'd be quite a lot you could do with, with a case study approach to thinking about you know, people who are, who are in those positions in the US. Tony, uh, it had been written that uh, uh, the Freudian view of mental conflict regarding sensitivity to mental conflict. Uh, is there something in the Freudian view that, uh, in, that Freud got right as far as criminal behavior? Is, is mental conflict that's unseen? Is that uh, a primary factor? How would you respond to that? Well, remember Freud was talking uh, about, you know, everybody's conflict and uh, the we are we are all um, conflicted subjects, um, and that where those that painful dimension becomes too much, you know, we can exhibit behaviour which is um, either on one end of the spectrum neurotic, I various neurotic symptoms that anybody might display, or you know, more seriously, psychotic symptoms might develop. And, um, you know, that is, you know, hearing voices, hallucinating, the various things that we talk of in terms of mental illness. Now, 
you know, we're all somewhere along that spectrum from pathology to normality. That was his big thing. None of us free from that. And it seemed to me that um, regarding various crimes in a pathological light uh, is, is, um, is quite commonplace. Um, what we would be trying to do in relation to a psychosocial approach would be to sort of humanise that, as Dave said, and normalise that and to say, you know, we're all variously neurotic, we're all mm-hmm. capable of, of, of being some, we're all somewhere on this spectrum. So when you ask generally what did Freud have to say about criminology, nothing as far as I can recall directly, but mm-hmm. many people, as I was saying, in the interwar period in particular, people who were influenced by psychoanalysis began to think of crime in that way. And there are um, all kinds of ideas within psychoanalysis that can help you think about um, crime. Um, but that's in a, in, a, in a general way. If you want to sort of talk about particular crimes, then of course you go to the case study as we, we've been um, suggesting. Mm-hmm. I see Dave had his hand yeah, up. Yeah, so David, go ahead. Yeah, there's probably a couple of things to say. I mean, Freud did have some things to say, of, of course, about young women who are in relationships with men who were um, pro- probably sexually abusive to them or sexually inappropriate to them and the symptoms that could arise or derive from that. Uh, and often sort of very mixed feelings that that would, would leave um, with young people who, um, you know, have no power in the relationship, maybe even felt something towards their abuser. So some of those things are still re- relevant today. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger conceptual message that I, I think sometimes missed from people that sort of go back to the sort of basic Freudian framework is that Freud had quite a lot to say about, about loss and melancholia and how loss can eat people up and mm-hmm. lead to those kinds of uncomfortable, irritable, depressive kinds of feelings. And then if we think about how loss affects many people today, you know, that, well, the many people that are involved in crime will have had a loss of adequate or loving parenting as, as children. So many people involved in crime will been, would have lost a parent altogether or been put in the care system or ended up in, in prison, separated from their families. But then we can also think about loss in lots of other ways and ways that also give rise to some difficult fantasies. You know, people who uh, lose a partner or, you know, find themselves um, broken up with a partner or lose contact with their children, become estranged and become very angry and bitter and twisted. Mm-hmm. Um, people who feel that their health is failing will, will feel a sense of loss and may become very envious of other people who are in good health, the same with people who lose their jobs, might become, you know, very angry about other people who they think are work shy. Of course, some of these losses can also be kind of capitalised politically. So we've we've seen in the UK the the sort of idea that people feel that their lives are out of control, leading to the sort of sloganising of of take-back control and how that empowered the kind of Brexit politics that we're now living in so many people's sense of loss you know can be redirected different ways and Freud had quite a lot to say about how we need to work through painful losses so that we don't become 
envious of other people or don't become paranoid about other people being out to get us mm-hmm. don't seek to take revenge on people who are probably not to blame um, for our, our problems so in that context I, th- I think Freud has quite a lot to, to offer thinking about issues around fear and panic uh, and reactions to crime in the sort of cultural dimension too Mm-hmm. Freud is still relevant then you think Freudian ideas are still relevant this day and age okay sure yeah uh, and actually making a bit of a comeback you uh-huh. one or two little books that uh, I can think of recently one of them uh, it's a series of essays talking about the influence of Eric Fromm mm-hmm. uh, example and Eric Fromm of course was one of the Frankfurt school that uh, you know, produced um, um, his colleagues produced the, the authoritarian personality, which is of course the classic mm-hmm. psychosocial look at racism. Mm-hmm. Trying to combine psychoanalytic ideas with survey work and trying to, out of that, producing a, a kind of type. In the end, the authoritarian personality. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a problem at some level is that it is ultimately a, an ideal type rather than mm-hmm. being able to explain all kinds of racism as it were. Um, but it, it, it's certainly an example of Freudian uh, deliberate attempt to 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 to, to um, bring together Freudian ideas with Marxist ideas and to sort of try and produce uh, account of. Tony, regarding the fear of crime, uh, there is an entire section on that in the book. Uh, how, how does one approach uh, the fear of crime from the psychosocial point of view? Well, I mean, we we approach it in the way that we approach other psychosocial subjects. Once you presume um, a psychosocial subject, fear of crime looks rather different. Remember that we were trying to uh, engage with the existing work. You always start with a critique of the existing work, and the existing work could come up with a uh, using surveys, asking people about their fear of crime, found out that the most uh, fearful subjects were the least at risk of actually being victims of crime, and the other way around, the most at risk subject, young men least fearful and that what we called the fear risk paradox was what survey after survey was producing mm-hmm. and um, fear of crime was uh, was part of uh, a sociological discourse that was you know feeding into moral panics and uh, uh, that was another way of thinking about it and what we were trying to do was to produce a, a, an approach that um, that started out with the psychosocial subject. In other words, how do you begin to understand people saying they're fearful of crime when they were not really very high risk? Why were they so fearful? So doing uh, in-depth interviews with them using something which we called the free association narrative interview method, which itself, which was something that I and Wendy Holway developed uh, around the project of film crime. We wanted to find a way of understanding this this conundrum and what we did through these three 
Association narrative interviews was discover that the what seemed to be happening is the the, the, the fear of crime, if you like, was uh, a defence against something else. It was covering up mm-hmm. uh, issues, mm-hmm. and so you know what they were telling us was only part of the story. We had to read that story through its silences as well as through what was actually being said. What was what was being defended against here, mm-hmm. um, and what we actually found, interesting enough, was that. Those people that were, and this you might have predicted, more anxious generally about lots of things in their lives, found fear of crime as a vehicle, a discourse, where they could project those uh, anxieties that were too troubling to sort of become manifest consciously. Mm an appropriate vehicle and fear of crime to, as it were, project onto. So that's an example of the psychosocial subject being absolutely necessary to understand something like the fear of crime, which did not seem to make any sense uh, if you approached it through through, uh, the idea that somebody's, you know, what they told you about fear of crime was the whole story. If you stop there, you, you, you've got this conundrum all the time. Why are these old people who never go out yeah. and do hardly at risk of crime so anxious about it? Mm-hmm. And anxiety gives you the clue. I mean, they, they were anxious about all kinds of things. Uh-huh. Fear of crime was an available discourse for them to, to project onto. That was the sort of idea that we were... It is part of that, just kind of in a in a simple way. Of people, because we're all afraid of crime and are comfortable talking about it, someone can express that idea when they're really afraid of something else, or they want to escape some other some other factor in their life, and they and they're just expressing it that way. And then we'll listen, the public in general will listen, because that's an a crime is an acceptable thing to be afraid of. Exactly. It's. Uh, it, uh, um... You know, the criminal is is a convenient scapegoat yeah. for, you know, like the terrorist yeah. now is. Yeah. You know, we we can dump a lot on these things, and that that and that, and that politically, that's very important. Uh-huh. Isn't it? Sort of getting the explanation yeah. right at the level of the individual politically. You know, realizing the role that crime plays politically and discourses about crime, discourses about terrorism. In creating moral panics and allowing, you know, politicians to make decisions um, which do not address the underlying, but you know, just address the surface issues. That that's that, that's why you know the, the politics as well as the technology uh-huh. in play here. Uh, we can be easily led in that sense, then. So. <laughs> Very much so, um, and um, I mean, crime has always played uh-huh. that role. And law and order campaigns, you know, they, they surface and they disappear a little while, but they never entirely disappear because they're so convenient for politicians to blame the other, the outsider, the terrorist, the criminal. Uh-huh. The, well, we all agree nobody wants crime. We Nobody wants terror in our lives, so we can all dump on that. Yeah. David? Um, I'm going to give David a yeah. chance. 
I mean, I suppose the fear of crime discourse is, is kind of all-encompassing, isn't it? So people may have genuine reasons to be afraid of the person they live with or, or um, you know, being assaulted out in the street or, you know, being burgled. But when you talk about fear of crime, people tend to collapse all kinds of things into that and they won't necessarily be very specific about the crime that they're, they're fearful about. Because some people would just say, well, I'm not afraid of anything. I'd be to- totally fearless in that. So mm-hmm. the kind of work that Tony and, and Wendy Holway were doing was trying to capture that kind of paradox that some people should have actually been quite afraid because they were always out getting into scrapes but seemed to be untouchable by mm-hmm. any, any discourse at the same time. But um, what the politics of this does, it takes the fear of crime. And actually what politicians do is they get very angry on behalf of fear of crime victims and that you know is a real rallying cry to do something on behalf of the fearful and so you you get this construction of the very vulnerable person that we're all uh taking action for uh, and and that's why the kind of fear of crime discourse is a really powerful one one that doesn't ever quite seem to go away it mutates as tony was saying into a fear of terrorism into a fear of immigration uh, but at the same time, your politicians can always reach for that, grab hold of that, mm-hmm. uh, and say, well, we're saying this on behalf of this imaginary fearful population. So the work that Wendy and uh, Tony were doing at that time was really quite important to show that actually this population that we speak on behalf of aren't quite as simple and as straightforward as mm-hmm. we're often led to believe. And there are often very real reasons why those people are particularly afraid to go out mm-hmm. and it may have issues to do with things that have happened to them in the past may have things to do with feeling that other people are talking about them and that, that they're ashamed uh, of that mm-hmm. uh, may have to do with you know being in poverty or being in ill health you know things that, that they don't want other people mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. uh, or it may have to do with being alone that the mm-hmm. person that had always given them a sense of security has gone and so not things that are very easy to fix by rounding up offenders or being tough on immigrants or introducing draconian laws that will stop subsequent terrorist attacks. Those things don't actually reach those people and actually may even make them feel even more fearful. There's mm-hmm. even more things that are out of their control that they can't get anywhere near. Mm-hmm. And going back to that, the, uh, an unconscious idea of those very underlying things that are at the root of it, shall we say, are, are the last things that any politician or pundit is going to talk about. Yeah, and there I think you need, you know, I think that's why it's important to have a kind of looser sense of what's unconscious because people might be conscious of those things, but they might be unspeakable mm-hmm. in the public domain. So they kind of get buried in context. It may be that some things that you're unconsciously afraid of, you could say to someone who were really close to, including your therapist if you've got one, or your partner, or a really close friend, you know, they might be curious enough to help you bring those things to the surface. In the public domain, in public debate about crime and punishment, those kind of things don't get said, but they remain latent in the, in the, in the public discourse. Uh, on, uh, in the book, uh, you have several chapters, and it seemed like each individual one of them could be... In- an entire interview, but they're, they're, I really like the one about um, uh, sexual assault, acquaintance rape, date rape. Uh, just in general, could you, either one of you 
if you want to say about that particular chapter. I think that relates a little bit to what we're saying about like fear of crime and how it's perceived. You know, is the concept of rape motivated by uh, a power, uh, is that a, a shaky foundation to look at how what motivates rape? And what, what have been your findings on that? David, do you want to say? A little bit about that. I think one of the things that that chapter was, was trying to do was to avoid the idea that all rapes are simply the same mm-hmm. uh, and all motives are simply the same for it. So there are certainly some people who are, you know, who are sadistically inclined and who actually get something out of going out there and, and making sure other people are are really hurt, you know, and they, and they enjoy that sense of power and control over other people. Uh, and I think there are other people who are just simply reckless around issues of consent and don't fully understand the benefit to both themselves and to the other person of checking in that consent is mutual and mm-hmm. that sex is pleasurable in that context. Um, so I think one of the things that chapter was, was trying to, to do was to say, well, we need to start to talk about sexual assault in a, in a kind of much more complex way that, that first of all, does recognise that there are some seriously disturbed people out there and their motivations do need to be understood and we need to understand where that desire to have that control and domination over other people comes from. Um, But at the same time, you know, when you think about the the prevalence of sexual violence and therefore how many men must perpetrate sexual violence, we have to try and look at some of those more everyday things too uh, and and get it at that level. And that's where the sort of discourse around rape rape that Tony and Wendy had written about in their earlier work comes in. You have to sort of think about about that, what the what the desire was on on on, on both parties' parts, and how mm-hmm. things may have got close to a sexual encounter that one person has pushed more than the other, um, rather than thinking about this in the kind of predatory terms where we we talk about serial stranger rapes. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Tony, you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to add that I mean. One of the motivations uh, politically uh, for this chapter goes back to the, uh, uh, the feminist notion that, um, the radical feminist notion about rape, that uh, um, a rape is a rape is a rape. And, you know, politically that might make sense, but in terms of trying to understand motivational issues, it, it really doesn't. There are huge differences between, you know, the brutal, sadistic um, rape murder and what was very big issue for at a period of time, probably still is in other, in many ways, date rape. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on in a date rape scenario is unfortunately much more complex than that, and sometimes a no does mean yes. Mm-hmm. You know, no means no, again, a feminist slogan, which politically is important, but actually the kind of, um, the, the, if you get inside, and we did in that particular case, and it used in the book, a particular case, the complexity of what's going on in that relationship, if you want to capture that, you really do have to sort of take off your political blinkers mm-hmm. and 
and, and attend to the to the, the the detail of the case. And in that case, you know, it does unfortunately problematise some of those issues. No, rape is not always just about power and control, mm-hmm. which again is not a feminist slogan. Rape is not about sex; it's about power and control. It's it's about a lot of things, uh, and that complexity is mm-hmm. what we're trying to hang on to, and to say, yeah, there are different kinds of rape, and, and you know, people's communications about rape ambivalence is a key term in psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. People can be ambivalent about a lot of things, neither yes nor no, yes and no, and the changing that takes place in in, in, in how you're thinking about a relationship, you know, it moves. It doesn't stay in the mm-hmm. same place. Mm-hmm. It's never cut and dried. And it's that cut and dried approach, which, as I say, politically, you might need in order to, to sort of push a case. Uh, I do understand that. And, but theoretically, understanding it, you have to move beyond the black and white mm-hmm. and into the grey. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, life is very great. Yeah. David, you wanted to say? Yeah, I mean, I mean in, in some ways, some of this, I was going to say, the debates we've done, in some ways it hasn't moved on at all, but the number of kind of high profile mm-hmm. sexual assault cases that are in the news now since the sort of advent of the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and the sort of evidence that, that sexual violence is happening in many walks of life, including with some very powerful. Um, men out there who who manage often to kind of evade mm-hmm. uh, convictions, even when there seems to be fairly overwhelming evidence mm-hmm. against them, out there has, has shifted some of the discourse. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that hasn't really shifted enough is is the sort of debate around issues around consent. I think this is where Tony is is going with this. That for quite a lot of men, I suppose the, the issue is well. Can I get consent to have sex with this person as if it is something to be won? And if the person says, well, I suppose, you know, if you have to, it's okay, or eventually, yeah, okay, then we may as well. That is kind of taken as consent on a sort of legal basis. Because what you're not really encouraging young men to look for is enthusiasm from the the person there. So, you know, in a lot of the interviews that I've done with domestic abuse perpetrators where we've got to this point in the conversation where they've talked about having sex with someone, you know, the consent hasn't really been kind of full-hearted. They've said, okay, uh-huh. um, not really wanted to do it. And I think, you know, that, that, that's what comes out of sort of trying to break down this issue of rape and sexual violence in a, in a psychosocial way is you actually get to the point where behaviours that are much more normal, particularly among young men, start to look a bit more problematic than we usually construe them in the media. So if someone has kind of been bamboozled into saying, yes, OK, because they've been wined and dined or given drugs or treated to something by somebody who's wealthy and powerful, well, then you may get kind of consent, you've still got a power imbalance, you've still got somebody who's kind of been whittled down in that, mm-hmm. and you've still got somebody who's probably going to regret saying, yeah, okay, the next day, because it wasn't kind of something that they could really think about and say that they wanted. So I think one of the things to sort of pull out of that is the sort of discourses around what what men do and how men talk about sex and sexuality, particularly heterosexuality, 
uh, and the idea of sort of winning a prize or getting something rather than something that's mutually mm-hmm. wanted is kind of lacking and that, that's how you get from you know uh, date rape which is unfortunately very common and serial statistic kind of stranger rates which are actually very rare but mm-hmm. is often what the public debate thinks a real rape looks like mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it's a pretty sensitive subject to to talk about isn't it yeah uh is also different and um, you don't really want to uh, well in many cases you really want to hear what victims and survivors have got to say and to respect their version of events and to understand that things have been really terrible and traumatic for them at the same time if we don't ever really engage with perpetrators then the problem won't go away Mm -hmm. so there is a job for somebody, uh, for criminologists in particular, to get to the messy reality of, of why offenders do what they do, and sometimes to hear that and to turn the looking grass back around on the general population, particularly when it's issues to do with male violence, and say, well, this isn't quite what you do, but it's not a million miles away. Uh, and so how is it that this person thinks that this is acceptable? You know, and, and in what context would... For example, you know, discourses around what women want or around sexual behaviour or around promiscuity feed into another man's sexual violence. So it's about that kind of normalising process that, that really needs to happen if you want to try and address some of these actually quite high volume crimes like domestic violence, sexual violence, hate crime, um, that the perpetrators, whilst they do things that are beyond the pale, of communities of people that you know sometimes talk in similar ways or do similar things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really kind of a surprise surprised me the number of famous cases that have become really impactful now with criminal charges. When I when I think maybe five or ten years ago, it wouldn't it would it wouldn't even make a headline in the news that there were these accusations. Mm-hmm. Now it's completely changed, and now it's uh, even politicians. Are impacted from from things that, when it occurred, was uh, was not even going to be looked at seriously, at least in the public eye. I mean, I think that is important that there, that, that there is, uh, you know, historically discursive understandings of of, of issues do change, mm-hmm. uh, and that is part of the issue here. You know uh, that how we approach or how we understand sexual violence, how we understand child abuse. Um, you know, remember it wasn't so long ago that uh, spare the rod and spoil the child was a, was a common sense uh, understanding. Now, of course, it's illegal to uh, take the rod to the child. That's a shift. And, uh, you know, so it's not only that, uh, you know, uh, we're trying to introduce a new understanding of, of, of psychosocial, but why, what constitutes a discourse of any discourse around sexuality, sexual violence, uh, all of that is, is, is constantly shifting. Um, uh, what we might say, the common sense of the age doesn't stay in the same place uh, in relation to any of these topics. Indeed. Um, uh, do you find it? Uh, did you find it 
difficult or easy for both of you to contribute to a, a, a book of this kind of complexity and this intrigue or or how, how did how did the writing process go for developing this work well I mean in both cases um, it was based on teaching experiences it was, a, it, was a, it was a course that I originally taught and then when I was off on Tobago Dave would teach it and inflect it his way and uh, so it really came out of our teaching experiences so in many ways it's a sort of teaching text uh, I think uh, we saw it in that way I hope I'm not, not speaking for David um, erroneously um, and uh, you know we so we had you know one of us would start a chapter that was uh, you know, our, one of our specialities, and the other would, uh, you know, look it over and make suggestions and changes. But that's how collective writing works. Somebody has to start it off, and then the other comes in and says, "Oh, not that. Yeah. Going to have to change that." Yeah. And eventually, you know, usually fairly amicably, you find a, a collective solution. David, your perspective of it was. It was always amicably, and uh, it was a, it was a, it was a great pleasure to to work on that book with Tony. But I think one of the things to say about the way we worked, and the thing that I really learnt from from using case studies, is it really helps to kind of work through your data with somebody else, particularly mm -hmm. somebody else who hasn't done the interview or wasn't close to the participants. So where we've used primary data with uh, offenders in the book, you know, Tony and I would have probably spent several weeks just kind of discussing the meaning of the case um, and thinking about whether, you know, whether what the person actually said is what they really meant and whether you could look elsewhere to find other meaning in the transcripts of the interviews we had. Uh, and that could be really quite challenging because if you've interviewed somebody and you either didn't like them and wanted to present them in a in a negative way, or if you did actually quite like them, despite what they've done, you might feel quite protective of the person you've interviewed. So having another person there uh, who can pull it apart and ask some really difficult questions was, was kind of our method of theoretical exposition, really, because you could start to sort of say, well, you know, if you read the case in this way, then this particular theory that's maybe more about attitudes might fit. But if you start to think there's some unconscious meaning here that suddenly appears later on in their account of what they did, then you need a different level of theory for that. So mm -hmm. we could work dialectically between us with that kind of material. And then, as Tony said, often some of that material would, would take its way, find its way into the classroom with students who mm -hmm. would then offer a different take, and you could bring that back into the discussion too. So, um, you know, being open to reading data, uh, particularly biographical and narrative data, is really important with the book. Like mm -hmm. um, here in the uh, on this podcast, we focused on uh, behavior analysis, and and that's I think what led me to your book because if you look, I never thought that. Uh, uh, well, you have to look at the individual case and then see what the the factor, what the variables are that are there. Do you think that the crime is so complex that it is? Uh, is it too much to uh, be able to determine what all the significant variables are, or are we reaching a stage where we can we can accomplish that effectively? I think the trouble is, you know, variables are okay at a macro mm -hmm. kind of level to, that might affect, for example, 
rates of burglary or rates of drug use, but they don't really get you down to the, the specifics of particular individuals. And so you might be able to reduce a rate, you know, by mm-hmm. X percent, but you're never going to resolve the problem of crime in that way. And mm-hmm. certainly when you come to problems of hate crime or of, of sexual violence or domestic violence like we've discussed today, you know, the variables are only going to take you so far with that. And the trouble with that kind of thinking about variables approach is it, it tends to lead to quick fix mm-hmm. solution. Don't really get at the meaning of the behaviour for the particular individual. And I think somewhere later in the book we we start to talk about resistance processes and how uh, you know people might find a way out of lives of crime. Well, those processes are, are quite complicated. So certainly you know ex-offenders mm-hmm. need a home and they need stability, and they need help with uh, substance dependency, and they need help with managing the way in which they react when they're in a conflict. But they also need, you know, people that can actually be there and recognise them for who they are, um, to work through adversity with them. They need to know that those people, for example, are going to stay with them, even if they kick off or say terrible things, and that they can actually weather um, some of their hostility and work it through and they, they're going to be curious enough to try and help them open up some mental space to think about the things that they've done or to think about some of the, the, the feelings or fears that they've got that they keep unconscious mm-hmm. troubles from their past shame about the things that they've done mm-hmm. so I think the trouble with the variable approach is it doesn't get to the, the real meaning mm-hmm. uh, of the behaviour and the real need for meaningful relationships to help people address their mm-hmm. behaviour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're actually quite hard to come by in mm-hmm. the criminal justice, justice context yeah. at the moment, both in the US and in the UK, mm-hmm. because we've started to move towards much more sort of transactional approach to mm-hmm. offender supervision, where people are paid to check in with someone, but that person doesn't necessarily have an obligation to work things through mm-hmm. uh, with the person that's been in trouble. Tony? I just wanted to add that um, in terms of whether we will ever be able to understand, you know, a particular crime in all its complexity, the answer is, no, we're always going to be a falling short. It's never going to happen. But I think, uh, you know, life's too complex in in Uh that sense. I mean, you know, am I ever going to be able to understand a man killing, you know, 70-plus mostly children on a Norwegian island uh, as a result of some right-wing views he had about Islam. I mean, the the, the kind of uh, relationship between his ideas and his upbringing and his his fantasies and and killing 70 people is, you know, how do you make those connections absolutely secure? You can't. However, I, I want to suggest that one of the things that our work does, and I think, you know, I'm thanking Freud for this as much as anybody, um, is is to show um, how important certain issues are. Mm-hmm. For example, in relation to Freud, I think what he does, among other things, is talk about the importance of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, punishment is a withdrawal of love. And I think what we've seen, mm-hmm. let's say, in my lifetime, is a shift from a punitive approach at the kind of familial level 
to upbringing to a more loving approach to our children. I'm not saying it's, you know, universal and there are all kinds of examples of child abuse and all the rest of it, but I think there's been a shift and, 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 and a greater accent on the importance of love in relationships as opposed to punishment. Mm-hmm. That's important, that's significant, that, that, that recognition that love matters. I don't think it was there, you know, 50 years ago as an understanding. I think it, it's not there universally, and it's, you know, it, but I think there's been a cultural shift uh-huh. and, and a reverence for childhood, you know, amongst thinking people, uh, which is, which actually says the opposite of what we used to say. Spare the rod will actually spoil the child, actually use the rod, it will damage the child. Uh-huh. That shift is a result of, uh, you know, partly a result of the Freudian revolution, I might, I would say, and something that I believe that our work can, as it will continue, by looking in detail and, and beginning to emphasise the importance of finding constructive ways of dealing with anxiety, finding different ways of feelings of loss um, and feelings of... Um, being unloved, mm-hmm. and, you know, um, that that is that is you know in, in general terms what I think this this can do it, it, it contributes I hope to a, a kind of shift in the culture which over time will lead to some kind of improvement in the way we think about and react respond to but. We're never quite going to understand all those particular crimes. And, and uh, Tony, just kind of like that, what you said made me think of like in, in this day and a- in the days past, in many communities, children were uh, an economic necessity, like to work on the farms or to rip that, and you needed children to obey. You needed them in fairly large number to obey and then to do these various tasks. Well, now children are not necessarily an economic necessity they're more like you know they're there because you want them to be there and so yeah. to, to me that's kind of an economic shift in the way children are viewed yeah but underlying that was the, the notion that we didn't really understand that childhood was a special moment that requires uh-huh. a very sensitive handling i mean uh-huh. children were, if you like little adults you say economic units to be sent down the mind i mean uh-huh. You know, this is child cruelty today, quite rightly. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's what, you know, so yes, we saw them as economic units because we didn't have the capacity, the, mm-hmm. the and tools to see them as anything other than little adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I... We've gone, I said about an hour, and we've definitely gone over an hour now, and I kind of think we've scratched the surface of, uh, of what you have to talk about. Um, I, you two, uh, this is the first dual interview I've done, and I think you two have made this uh, exceptionally easy, and I appreciate that. Do you have anything more you want to add on the subject or where you want to go with the work? Uh, Tony, can you want to say? just wanted to uh, respond to your question that you put in your email about Jack Katz. Yes, yes. Jack Katz's Seduction to Crime is a very significant book because, uh, you know, as a sociologist, he said, hey, you've been looking at the background factors like, you know, poor, poor backgrounds and poverty and deprivation. 
hey, let's look at what happens in the immediacy of crime, you know, what happened in the foreground. And so he produces his brilliant phenomenology to what's happening. However, what he doesn't do is, is supply these people in their phenomenological moment with, with an inner world. What that means is that although he can, he can sort of make sense of, uh, he used all kinds of examples, uh, you know, the killing of Gary Gilmore, the, mm-hmm. the, the killer, uh, what might have been happening. Remember, he's reading secondary accounts, but he's trying to understand what might have been happening. Uh, some of those journalistic secondary accounts all look very good. What's, what's going on at that moment? But what he can't answer is why Gary Gilmore was capable of, you know, moving from a moment of uh, being enraged, say, to a moment of killing, whereas another person with a different, you know, world and a different psychoanalytic background, if you like, would have been enraged but would not have killed. And I like to think that what we might have added to that was an explanation of why Gary Gilmore killed and person B was enraged but didn't kill. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he can't encompass. Mm-hmm. Even though his phenomenologies are, I think that, uh, you know, he's a sociologist and he would admit as much. He's not trying to envisage him in, in a world. But I think if you add that to what he does, then then you would be able to begin to approach these other, this other question as to why this person, rather than that person, mm-hmm. ended up doing this dastardly deed. Mm-hmm. Very good. Then, David, do you want to add anything more to that? Or? Well, I, I totally agree with what Tony says about cats, and I think the... the Thing that cats get right really about many of the crimes that we you know routinely turn over in the news is that they're the ones where people are are humiliated whether by you know armed robbers or mm-hmm. burglars or, or whomever or domestic abusers or whatever it's those kind of crimes that really preoccupy us because they're about you know really hurting somebody else and there is a level of consciousness that do you know that people know what they're doing often at the time they may not have intended actually to kill somebody but they certainly wanted mm-hmm. to put them in their place mm-hmm. um, and we have to start to ask some questions about why some people feel that desire to put other people in their place mm-hmm. so acutely and it does come back often to those issues of um earlier parts of people's lives, particularly their childhoods, I think, where people often have felt either very alone or abandoned or humiliated themselves or have been made to feel dirty or unworthy. Mm. Of course, our our criminal justice systems also add to those Mm -hmm. injuries too, that people often come out much more damaged and alone uh, or feeling wronged or humiliated than when they went in. And so... Some people don't have the mental space to fully work that through and recognise that the next person they're attacking Mm -hmm. actually had very little to do with or even nothing to do Mm -hmm. with what happened in the past. So it's about trying to 
first of all, sort of recognise that that desire to humiliate comes from somewhere. There's also a real need to shift our culture to thinking about how we create a space for people that have these sometimes really terrible feelings, sometimes intense paranoia, um, a real sense of grudge or grievance that they want to visit on someone else. How do we make space, you know, as a society for those people to work through the, the terrible things that are going on in their in their minds, and particularly when those things are not there all the time, you know? And what CAPS does is to recognise that sometimes these things will be there in the heat of a moment, in a confrontation, but not the next day or the next week. You know, that person won't be the bad guy all of the time. They'll have some redeeming qualities, they'll have some very positive moments, they'll have sometimes when they're actually trying to make good for the terrible things they've done to be a, a good parent, a good father, a good employee. Um, so we can't always see them, the other person that they are, when they're in that, in that rage. That, that would be where I would leave it. Uh, I think Katz had written about uh, the, I think he called it the double humiliation of like you're in a relationship you you uh, have things that happen. You don't admit that it bothers you, and then it reaches a point where you have to you have to do something, and that is admitting that this same thing has been bothering you all this time. So it's the event, and then it's a, it's a recognition of the humiliation all this time, and that that is a particularly lethal moment in a lot of relationships when that occurs. I think that's right, and that kind of rumination thing is. Is true of a lot of violent crime. I think you know some of it will get directed. A lot of it will go and get directed at, at partners where a grudge has been built up. But some of it may easily spill out into uh-huh. the next person that makes a critical remark or even looks at you in a slightly peculiar way. Um, you know, we've interviewed people who you know attack people because they think they're talking about them in their own language. They may or may not have been, but they just assume that that other person is is talking about them. Um, so, you know, people in that mindset are, can be very volatile and it takes a lot of effort to be the person to try and unpick that. It can be quite dangerous to start to ask that person why they think or feel the way that they, they do. Mm-hmm. Do I Go ahead. Do I add one, one second? I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, in everyday terms about paranoia and of course this comes from the Freudian tradition. Mm-hmm. So, I should have paranoid that you know you're you're saying something about me when in fact they're not but yeah. you imagine they are that that's a classic example of uh, you know from psychoanalysis you know and paranoia produces paranoid feelings will produce uh, you know very violent sometimes outcomes as, as you know if you think somebody's out to get you you get them first mm-hmm. you've got a crime on your hands Well, this, uh, I will say there's a lot to this. I don't know if we can continue this at, a, at another time because there's so much more. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you had the Jeffrey Dahmer case in there. You had some other, like I said, each chapter was really significant. So maybe if I can, if I can beg and plead, we can, we can do this again sometime if, if you have the time or, or individually. Well, that's fine. We're not going anywhere at the moment. We're all okay. locked down. So. <laughs> For sure, yes. Um, uh, w- would you want to say anything about the Jeffrey Dahmer case, that particular chapter? Because that, that is one, I think it's a, it's a case that a lot of people find inexplicable, 
but uh, you, I thought you did a good analysis of it. Tony, did you want to say anything about that one? Yeah, I mean, I can only really go back to what I was saying earlier about uh, the importance of love and attention in those early days. I mean, so often in the case of the Jeffrey Dahmer, but it's also there in the case I'm reading about, the, uh, the killer from Norway, and many others, you know, there are problematic features of their childhood which goes back to a feeling of being unloved, unwanted, and, and often, and I think it's probably what's true in the Gilmore case, you know, uh, very, dealt with very punitively, the punitive, you know, father. I mean, that combination of, of having to deal with and, and never having what I think Winnicott, a psychoanalyst, called good enough parenting, good enough uh -huh. care, um, it will produce a mindset which has particular ways of dealing with that, that, that feeling of anxiety and vulnerability that that will throw up. And, you know, Dama, like all of the others, becomes a very strange and uh, diffident child, having difficulty in relationships, having difficulties in school, uh, and so on. And then producing a fantasy world that um, you know, compensates. And in his case, you know, gradually entering that fantasy world was the idea of uh, having sex with dead men. Mm -hmm. uh, not a sort of fantasy that, uh, you know, many of us have, I, I think. Uh, and quite where that particular fantasy comes from, um, you know, one can't really say, but it, it comes out of a whole series of disappointments, frustrations, unloved feelings that are compensated for, dealt with in fantasy, and then the movement from fantasy to reality, again, we try and, you know, trace it out in the book, comes in stages and there are periods when he's, you know, feeling he wants to have sex with a dead man mm -hmm. and he's already kicked, but he goes for a long period where he's able to contain it and control it. So, like Dave was saying earlier, this isn't something that is, is upon him all of the time. It can be contained and controlled under certain circumstances. But... You know, under other circumstances, those containments and controls begin to break down again and it goes on to kill. But, yeah, in a way, the devil is in the detail, as you as you say. So, mm -hmm. I mean, aside from sort of trying to repeat each and every detail, I can't do more than say that. But it, this, this, the, the, the point about the, the early childhood difficulties, I don't think you can find any serial killer, anybody who's had, you know, guilty of those kinds of crimes, had a happy, unblemished childhood. Did, did he... Uh, almost invariably, there's been significant failures of yeah. nurture. Uh-huh. You know. Was it to have sex with, with the dead, or was it to have uh, sexual relations with just kind of an ultimate vulnerable person? Was the was the vibe I got? If there's even a distinction there, but he did. It's not that once a dead person is someone that can't criticize or respond to him in any way. 